0: Six small stones instead of five. We could have pulled that one off.
1: Good morning. As you can see, I'm one of the elders here. (laughs) Would you all pray with me? Father, let the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. We praise you, who made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all of its host, and the heavens declare your glory, the glory of your greatness, your wisdom, and your power. The earth shows forth your handiwork, and the variety and perfection exhibited in nature. You are the God who answers prayer, the rewarder of all who diligently seek you. You came down from heaven and spoke to mankind, and gave us your word, which is pure, And enlightens us by revealing yourself to us through your son, Jesus Christ. You are the Lord that chose Abram and gave him the name Abraham and made a covenant with him. And by faith, Abraham went out. But by grace was he chosen by God. And by grace, we are saved. The grace that came to Abraham through the call of God comes to us all in the gospel of Jesus Christ. O oh, most holy and merciful Father, we confess to you and to one another that we have sinned against you by what we've done and what we've left undone. We've not loved you with our whole heart and mind and strength. We walk away from neighbors in need, wrapped in our own concerns. We condone evil, prejudice, warfare, and greed. God of grace, help us to admit our sin so that as you come to us in mercy, we may repent and turn to you and receive forgiveness through Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Father, we thank you. We thank you for electing, choosing, and calling us to be Christians, even before time began. We thank you for sending your Son to become a perfect man to rescue us. We thank you for imputing our sins to him and his righteousness to us. We thank you for coming, O Holy Spirit, to convict, comfort, and encourage and enable us. We thank you for preserving your word in your church and the fellowship of believers. We thank you for godly, gifted men who teach, guide, and direct us in your ways. We thank you for this nation where we can freely worship you. We thank you for each of our individual gifts and opportunities that you give us to serve in your church and in your community. Father, we pray this morning that the pastor's message would teach and equip each of our hearts. We pray for healing and encouragement for the cancer patients that are in the bulletin, particularly for Bob and Jan's daughter, Kathy, for Becky Testerman, and for Joan Brown's daughter, Michelle. We pray for successful surgery for Jan Braun. We pray for the mobility for June Schwobel and continued healing for Kirk Brown, Shirley Forbes, George Schwobel Sr., and the DeHavens. We pray for growth in the kingdom through the regional YWAM ministry and healing through the Celebrate Recovery program. We pray for comfort and healing for others listed in the bulletin and those that we all keep in our personal prayers. We pray for the families. We pray for the families to grow strong and to worship together. We pray for those among us who are alone, that we might give them the needed support and that we might help their caregivers. For those who suffer emotional distress, problems with addictions or mental illnesses, we ask for encouragement and healing. We pray that you would provide each of us divine appointments so that we could tell people about you. We pray for our missionaries. We pray that you'd give them encouragement and confirmation through generous support. We pray for our military men and women. We ask that you'd keep them safe and watch over their families. We ask that you would provide Christian ministers and fellowship opportunities wherever our men and women serve. Father, we pray that you would resolve these international conflicts without U.S. military involvement. We pray for our country. We pray that we would trust in your work among the nations, particularly our own. Let us work diligently to honor you and your church. We pray that you would begin a new worldwide spiritual awakening beginning here. We pray for our session and diaconate. We ask that you would give them unity, wisdom, and discernment as they deal with the issues before them. We pray for our church, that you would make our ministry and outreach sincere and effective in our own neighborhood. And then, Father, we pray the prayer that you taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation. But deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
0: Turn in your Bibles, in your Bibles to the book of Acts. Uh, it's not the little book of Amos. We're going to be tackling a little bit more in the book of Acts. Uh, but the verse that's carrying our theme comes from the book of Luke. While you're turning to Acts, I just wanted to highlight that one verse that is on the front of the bulletin, which is from Luke 12. I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. The idea of acknowledging God or confessing Christ is something that is, I'm, going to, I'm going to be unpacking over the next few weeks. Uh, confessing Christ before men. Have you ever done that? The rhetorical question, you should say yes. You know, if people ought to be able to see that you know Jesus. People ought to be able to recognize something different about you. Before I got into the sermon, I was just thinking about going to this funeral where my uncle Peter died, and we were in a little church up in a town of Ontario, and it's... It made me a little sad that, that people, a lot of folks up there, don't know the old, old story, and I was wondering how many people are being faithful to confess Christ to others. As we go through the passages today, you're going to see that people were confessing Christ. They were acknowledging him in their ways, and my prayer is that we will be people, the people of God who confess Christ Boldly before men. So let us reverently attend to the public reading of God's inerrant, infallible words. We're going to be looking at at two particular passages. Uh, The one is in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. The other one in chapter 4. So let us pay attention to those two scriptures. In Acts chapter 2, the word of God says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now in Acts chapter 4, verse 31, which is just a couple of chapters over, the scripture there begins, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. I'm going to unpack these passages, plus a few others that are connected to this particular theme, but uh, today's message... We'll come right after we pray. Our Heavenly Father, what does it mean? What does it mean to confess Christ? Lord, when we ask the question in different ways, some of us are more apt to say, yes, we are. Sometimes we're a little nervous about saying, yes, we do. I pray that it would be natural for us. I pray that you will strengthen our faith as the Word of God is broken before us. I pray that we might see you more clearly, that we would hear your voice more clearly as well. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. It's pretty interesting to know Amos. We've been spending quite a few cha- time, time with Amos. Uh, all nine chapters we were walking through, we were able to not only get the message, but also see the parallels. Because Amos was speaking last time. In the Old Testament, he was speaking to the people of God, but they were divided. They were the people from the north and the people from the south, but the division really was that there were those who were following God and those who were, who were leaning on their own understanding. But they were all considered the people of God. They were all heirs to the promises. And Amos comes out and he says, this is not going to work. And so through the helicopter view of faith, we were given a glimpse of what God sees And we were also given the opportunity to do the diagnostics with him. As we walked through the book, you could see the the shortcomings and the frustrations. And then we heard the dreaded treatment. God was going to have to deal with the cancer that was inside of the the people. And the punishment or the, the judgment that was coming, the surgery was going to be very severe. But we ended up on Easter celebrating that it wasn't going to be the end of it all because God has a plan that is, including Christ, is going to remedy the issue, the issue of sin. Now, that is good news, and and we already went and echoed that Christ did come and that Christ did die and Christ did rise again. These were of utmost importance, and because of that, the applications in the New Testament are very, very, very encouraging. So we've looked at Amos, but now the shift is, is not just doing all the diagnostics and seeing what God has done, but the call for us today is to learn what does he expect of his people in 2016. What does God want from you? Well... You know, if I was one of those kind of preachers, I might be able to say he wants, you know, we should pass the offering plate a second time. He wants more. Give till it hurts. But that's not the emphasis. The emphasis in the New Testament is that God didn't want a part of you. God wanted all of you. And that when he claimed you as his own, he would be your God and you would be his people. That that would mean that you're still all of Is He chose us. When you read the back of the bulletin, you can see what it means to be a part of the covenant community, to be numbered with God's people. It has its privileges. It has its benefits. I want to encourage everyone to stand up and say, I'm with God's people. I want to be numbered with them. But as, we, as, as I want to teach this to you and show it to you, I start off by saying, what is the means of growth? This little evangelism device has been very helpful. You know, when it starts off... You've seen it before. Uh, you start off with the issue of sin, that, that there's a separation between God and man. And, and God had to do something about it because otherwise the wages of our sin is death. We're going to go to hell. We're going to be apart from his grace. But the good news is that he did something about it. He came and he died. Good Friday is ever before us. And that it wasn't just that he died, but that he was buried according to the scriptures. And on the third day he rose again, which is great encouragement. Up from the grave he arose. And this is why Paul says Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one will ever get to the Father. No one will ever get to heaven except through him. So that is wonderful news. And then there's this question, have you been rescued? Has God saved you from your own utter despair? Has he reached down with his nail-scarred hands and pulled you out of the pit and rescued you? That's what it means to be saved. That our sovereign God would reach out to you and lovingly give you faith and save you. Well, once you get that, then you've fixed the sin problem because now there's no more condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Our sin has been washed away and that's where it gives the application. When you look at this page, you have a beautiful, clean heart. And around that heart, there are a few things. They have prayer, the Bible reading, they have fellowship, and they have a world with a cross on it, evangelism, the gospel themes. Now, these five things are part of what I'm going to be unpacking for us today in the New Testament church. What is God expecting out of his covenant community? It's not just enough to diagnose, but now the question is, what would he have us do? What are the marching orders? If you go through the other evangelism program, EE, Evangelism Explosion, after the gospel has been shared and after you understand that the key to heaven is trusting in Jesus Christ for eternal life, then there's five things. It's always really easy when you have five things because when you're sharing the gospel, oh yeah, five. And so the first one, the thumb, is the Bible. The Bible. The Bible is the thing that holds everything else together. You need to be in the Word of God. The second was the one, the pointer finger, that points up to heaven, and that is prayer. The third one is the highest point of your week. It should be something you don't miss. What's the most important thing of your week? Some of you are just set up for that answer. I am so thankful I got some of you to say that, that it wasn't the Villanova game tomorrow. Um, you know, I want to be able to make sure you know that worship is the most important thing because that's the appointment with God. It's a meeting with God, the highest thing. Then the next one is kind of, kind of connected with worship, but it's fellowship. And it's all, it's your ring finger. It's, it's where you have community. It should be among the people of God, among the covenant community. And the last one, they add a fifth to this. Uh, the fifth one is, is on the outside, but rubs up against the world. It's when you evangelize. So you have the Bible, prayer, worship, fellowship, and witness. Those five particular things. Now, as I've been reading and looking at what is a healthy church, those five things need to be there. Tim Keller, in one of his sermons, listed five things that come from from Christ's directives about a church. First, there is transcendent worship, where people sense the presence of God. Instead of starting with the Bible, he starts with worship, or the highest point, the high one. He says, secondly, people begin to study the word because the truth begins to shine in their lives. So then he goes to the word of God. He says, people need to read and study and be discipled in the word of God. Thirdly, he says, people's barriers come down to sharing openly with other people because Jesus is real to them, and you no longer have to hide from people. So intimate fellowship and dynamic community and deep friendships develop. What you find out is that fellowship aspect. You start to care for one another. And then fourthly, he says, there is an aggressive outreach and evangelism, and many people are converted. People who have no interest in religion at all find themselves attracted to a place where people are excited about what they believe. That's evangelism. That's the fifth finger, if you remember, brushing up against the world. And fifthly, he says, there is a major impact on society around. Turning this society more like the kingdom of God, that is, a society of justice and mercy. In other words, life is better. Life is different than just people leaning on their own understanding when all of those things are applied in our society, in the community around us. It's really interesting when you see all those things come together. Now, our text is from Acts chapter 2, and beginning at verses 42 to 47, I actually there are 11, 11 things, 11 dynamics that actually come out, and uh, we're going to just touch on one of them. But I'll list you the 11 that are in the text. The first one is Instruction. The people continued steadfastly in doctrine. By the way, if you're not a doctrine person, this is the very first thing that, Paul, or that, that Luke tells us, that they, uh, they continued in the doctrine and the teaching. Secondly was fellowship. They continued in the fellowship of the saints. The third thing that is listed here in Acts chapter 2 is the observance of the ordinances, the breaking of bread, where they would come and have communion where they would deal with their sin, because that's often where repentance takes place. The fourth thing was corporate prayers. In our text, verse the fourth thing comes out there that they continued in prayer. We're going to highlight that today. Number five, effective outreach. Fear came upon every soul, not just those people in the community, but around the community. Number five, excuse me, number six, they had all things in common. They had a common purpose, a common vision. Number seven, they had mutual assistance. They cared for one another and actually engaged. They divided them among all as everyone had need. Number eight is found later in Acts chapter 20. They had worship services. Chapter uh, number nine, they had, a, they had correction of sin. You can find that in several of the epistles. Uh, number 10, they had pastoral oversight. Uh, you find that in 1 Peter 5. And number 11, they had obedience to God's commands. Participation in the local church was not optional, but it was imperative. You have all these benefits that come out of the community of believers. All these. Within the session recently, we spent quite a few hours together, and we summed it up with five actions. You'll be hearing them in the days to come. Praying, caring, discipling, communicating, and committing. Caring, praying, Discipling, communicating, committing. These are things that we're going to be encouraging the saints to engage in. These are not, uh, they're just categories to put them in, all these 11 things. But I pray that they will be descriptive of all of us. But today we're going to focus on one. We're going to look first and foremost at prayer. Uh, Today, using Luke as our guide, we're going to go and dive in and say, how did prayer affect people? And as we make this application, what should happen with each one of us is maybe you'll scratch your head and say, do I pray? When did I last pray? What do I pray for? As you consider these things, it is very exciting to take notice of it. The three aspects of, uh, that we're going to see first is that prayer happened. Prayer happened. It happened. There's no doubt about it that the people of God just naturally were praying. Secondly, I want to explain how it happened. In other words, the maneuvering, the procedural aspects. And thirdly, I want to tell you uh, what happened after they prayed. So it happened. I want to tell you how it happened. And then I want to tell you what happened next. So the first part in understanding this particular passage, if you have your Bibles open, you'll be able to follow along with me, is I want you to see that prayer happened. In Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 4, the two texts that I had printed for you in Acts 2... They, continued, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to their prayers. And Acts 4, and when they had prayed, the place where they were gathered together was shaken. Those are the two texts, but these are not the only texts. So if you will, just walk with me through the early stages of the life of the the organization of the church taking shape. For the organism of the church has been there since Adam and Eve, but it's only taken organized organization once Jesus ascended into heaven and gave gifts unto men, Ephesians 4.12. He gave them leadership gifts. He gave them uh, a challenge to do things decently and orderly. He wanted them to appoint leaders in the different churches. And if you see all of this coming together, it was not void of prayer. Prayer happened. It happened. So let me tell you about some of them. The first one you find is that when the book of of Acts opens up, where are they gathered? They're in this upper room on Mount Zion. And what were they doing in the upper room? The predominant activity that they did for those multiple days was complain. Are you sure about that? There's a, a murmuring in this room. You know, it's pretty obvious that when they gathered in this upper room, they didn't know what was coming. They didn't know what was on the horizon. And maybe you don't know what's on the horizon either. But one thing they did know is they know who held the future. My dad used to always say that, that you, you pray for the one who holds you in his hand. Because he can take care of things. So the first thing you find in chapter 1 is that they're gathered together praying. Now, did this happen by accident no, because before Jesus ascended, <laughs> he actually told them to go over there and to pray. He says to go and be in one accord. And that's one thing that happened. And I want to encourage you to see how important it is. Because it happened first. In chapter 1, after they had been in the upper room, then they had a, a problem. They had to fix a vacancy on the, on the leadership staff. What did they do? starts with a P. They prayed, and then, of course, they cast the lots, and it was figured out to be for Matthias. Uh, In chapter 2, every believer was steadfast in praying after they were saved. This is the text that I just read. After Peter preached his sermon and 3,000 were saved, they continued steadfastly in prayer. All these new people were praying. What do you think they were praying for? Well, let me make it easier for you. When you became a Christian, what did you pray for? If you prayed for things, you're probably praying for your lost loved one, your spouse, your children, your parents, your neighbors. Because once you know you're going to heaven, what do you know about them if they don't know Christ? That they're not. And so I could just imagine part of the fervor of this prayer. They've seen Christ. They understand the guy who died on the cross just a few weeks before. They get it. They understand the resurrection from the dead because now they believe that this guy has risen. And now they know him. They feel his love. And they want to pray to him. As you go through, you can see what other things happen in chapter 4. There was prayer persecution by the saints, which is where we are going to pick up in just a moment, and I'm going to talk about why they prayed there. Chapter 6, there was, uh, there was, they, were, uh, they were selecting more officers to help serve the tables, and the reason why they wanted deacons in the church was so that the apostles and the elders could devote more time to two things, to the Word of God and to prayer. Do you think prayer is important? Are you sensing it? Because this is the way it happened. I'm not just making this up. This is what's recorded. If you go to chapter 8, the apostles come to pray for the saints in Samaria. They're seeing what's going on with Philip. They're seeing conversions. And some of them come down and they gather in prayer. And the Holy Spirit comes upon them, even to confront that one man named Simeon. In chapter 9, you find prayer. Because after Saul was trying to, to get all the Christians persecuted, you find him praying. And God tells Ananias, that, that, guy, that guy is praying. Go see him. In chapter 10, you find Cornelius praying on his knees. In chapter 11, you find intercessory praying for all the apostles that, have, that are suffering persecution. In chapter 13, you're finding that before they sent the missionaries out, they, they prayed. In chapter 16, you find that the guys who were the missionaries are in prison and they're praying and singing. And then in chapter 13, uh, Chapters uh, You can go on further into chapters 20 and 28. You find again and again people praying, praying, praying. The first point of this sermon is that it happened. This is just the way it was. People who know God, the people of God, they pray. Now the second point is how did it all happen? How did it come together? If you go back to Luke, and Luke is the one that records this for us. Back in chapter, uh, in the Gospel of Luke, which is the, it's the book that was written before the book of the Acts. In Luke chapter uh, 10, uh, Jesus, up to this point in time, Luke 1 through 10, Jesus has been doing all the praying. You find Jesus going away to a mountain. You find Jesus doing all these things. And he does the praying. And then you find in chapter 10, there's a shift. Jesus looks to them, and let me quote it, in chapter 10, verse 2. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers, laborers are few. Therefore, do something. Pray. This is the first time you find that Luke records that Jesus tells them to pray. You know what happens in chapter 11? Let me read it for you. Chapter 11, verse 1. When Jesus was praying in a certain place, when he finished, that one of the disciples come up to him and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. Apparently, it wasn't as natural in the book of Luke as it is after the, book, uh, after the resurrection. Before this time, the people have seen Jesus praying and being in fellowship with the Father, talking to Him, sharing His heart because prayer is offering up our desires to God for things agreeable to His will with thanksgiving in the name of Christ. You know, all of those kind of things. I was going to say with confession of sin, but Jesus didn't confess any. But when they ask Jesus, teach us how to pray, chapter 11, verse 1, he ends up teaching them to pray. And then he teaches them parables about how they ought to continue in prayer and not lose heart in chapter 18. And it's really fascinating that they've caught on. Because in the book of Acts, they are praying and praying and praying and praying. That's the way it was. How did it get to this place? It's because Jesus taught them. And when you think about... Some adverbs to describe prayer, a prayer life, uh, the way you might be praying. These are some that come up in Scripture. You should pray unceasingly. You should pray earnestly. That's what Jude says. You should pray transparently. In other words, be real. You ought to be praying boldly, which is what our text in Acts 4 is all about. And you should be praying fervently, which is what James says. That if somebody's hurting, they should pray like Elijah, who is a man like us. And he prayed fervently. Now, if you get into the idea, that's the kind of adverbs that you should be describing your prayers. Now, here's a few adjectives. I borrowed these from our minute prayer meeting on Saturdays. They're three C adjectives. Our prayer can be closet prayer, continual prayer, or corporate prayer. The guys that come, you know what we're talking about. The closet prayer is stuff that you pray individually. The the Continual prayer is your fellowship with God wherever you're going, even if you're driving with your eyes open, of course, but you're constant in fellowship with God. And the third one is the corporate prayer, which is what we see a lot of in the book of Acts. Corporate means we come together. We just don't stay by ourselves. Now this happens. I just want to be able to now make the application for us with three V's. Prayer is vertical, vital, and victorious. When you actually get to praying and you answer the question, how do we pray? How should I pray? Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer, which we just prayed, he says, number one, you pray vertical. It's with God. Don't just talk to yourself. Talk to God. And when you address God, acknowledge him that he's not just like you. He's your Father. He's in heaven. He's to be hallowed. It's His will that should be done because He's sovereign. You get the picture? It's vertical. And it's done in Jesus' name. But prayer is also vital. This is something that ought to be happening in our lives, just like breathing is. And I also, you know, you've heard of the ACTS praying. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. The, the ACTS praying. The first A stands for adoration. Then you have the C for confession the T for thanksgiving, and the S for supplication. Those are the four aspects that are, are the four parts of the content of praying. But when you look at the, uh, the vitals, I, I, breathing in and breathing out. You know, as I was doing some research for the, uh, the seven words from the cross, you realize how Jesus died. It wasn't from a loss of blood, although he lost a lot. It was because he couldn't breathe anymore. The asphyxiation, he can't even breathe out what it, in order to take breath in. You've got to raise up to be able to get it in. This whole idea of breathing is twofold. It's taking it in and taking it out. And your prayer life ought to be like that breathing. And that's why I always like to say the two of those, the things that you take in, the things that are that are constantly being uh, inhaled are, are praise and petitions uh, those, those are the things that we think of, the great things about God. These are the things that we're taking in and understanding how grand He is, how glorious, how kind, how, how beneficial, but also even the things that He can do for us. We know that He can heal. We know that He can encourage. We know that He can raise up. We know that He can break a hardened heart. He can soften it. He can make it like flesh. But confession is what we exhale and our thanksgiving. What comes out of us then is that we ought to acknowledge as we're talking to God God, I'm sorry. God, I repent. God, I renew a right spirit within me. And Lord, thank you for saving me. Or as our brother Larry prayed, thank you for choosing me. You see, when you understand these elements of prayer, they become vital to your everyday life. That's why they are continuous, that's why it's without ceasing. But thirdly, I wanted to highlight the fact that prayer is victorious. It makes a difference because God changes things. This doesn't change God, but prayer changes things, which is why the third point of this, I want to tell you what happens when we do pray. Where does the victory come? If you'll turn in your Bibles to to Acts chapter 4, you're going to be able to follow along with me in this particular text. In Acts chapter 4, why are the people praying? Why are they praying? We've already seen in verse 31 that they're praying. In Acts chapter 4, it is a powerful statement about the, about the state of affairs, where things were going on in the world. I mean, in some ways, you would think that these were the greatest of times. 3,000 people were saved. But what happened to those people? They were being persecuted. They were being taken advantage of. They were being mocked. So if you see verse 31, and when they had prayed, the, okay, I want to back up and I want you to see that in, at the beginning, uh, verse 23, you're going to see why they were praying. This is chapter 4, verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported to the ch- what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Now, what had they said to them? They told him, stop talking about Jesus. Stop confessing Jesus before men. Do you see the parallel now? Stop it. Don't do it anymore. You guys are causing trouble. They had already thrown verse 19, if you back up. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to, your, uh, listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot... But we have to speak what we have seen and what we have heard. And so they were further threatened and then let go. Now, the point I'm trying to get at is that because they had gone through all of this, now they're gathering with the other Christians. Verse 24, when the Christians heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God. Now, what's that another way of saying? They prayed. Now, did they pray quietly? No, they prayed quietly corporately. And they're, gener- I mean, they're, they're agitated. They're taking these petitions before God because they're saying, Lord, we believe. How can we hold our tongue? How- we have to confess Christ before men. And, he, and they said, uh, when they heard it, they lifted up their voices to God and they said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Notice the vertical. You see it clearly. Who through the mouth of your father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and he's quoting from Psalm 2, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine the vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Now, this is a quote from Psalm 2 from David. But they're praying the word of God. It's pretty cool. But they go on, for truly in this city we're gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate. I can't believe it. They named the politicians. It's okay to name the politicians. Along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, including their neighbors, including the people that were around them in their local community. They're dealing with reality in their prayers. But what are they praying for? I don't know if you caught it yet. To do whatever your hand and your plan has predestined to take place. Now O Lord, look upon their threats and then, and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with This is the point of the prayer. They are going around and they're acknowledging that the sin and the problem is not with everybody else. It's not with Herod. It's not with Pontius Pilate. It's not with their neighbors. It's with them because they were lacking in something. What were they lacking? They were afraid to confess Christ before men. They were afraid. And so they prayed together, Lord, give us that boldness. Help us not to be afraid of Jesus, our Savior. Now, simply put, they prayed this prayer, and what ends up happening? Well, in verse 31, it said there was some shaking that took place. So I briefly want to make this application as we wrap up the sermon in this. In order for them to get down to their knees and start praying to God for boldness so that they would confess Christ and not be ashamed of him, they had to first be shaken. When, when Peter and, and John were going about doing the things that should have been natural, they had just preached the gospel on Pentecost, a lot of great things are happening, you would think everything would be great, just like church life. It should be great, 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 as my mom would say. But it's not great. And the next thing you know, they're shaken because they're getting pulled apart, they're taken away from the crowd, they're hidden in a quiet place, they're being interrogated, they're being browbeaten, they're being told, don't you do that again. I don't know if you've ever heard that. Has anybody ever told you to be quiet? Tell you, the first time I was in Washington working in the U.S. Senate, and I was uh, there when Reagan was in office, uh, you know, it was exciting times. I'm working in the Senate Hart office building, and about four weeks into it, my boss comes to me and she says, you cannot tell people about Jesus here. I mean, it happened to me. Has it happened to you? where people are going to tell you that you need to be quiet, be nicer, soften it up. You know, you can't win people to Jesus if you, if you offend people. The whole point here is that the prayer for boldness was because their world was shook up. They were shaken. And when they were shaken, there was a lot of fear in that, but they decided we have to obey God rather than man. This is Peter and John we're talking about. These are the two guys that saw Jesus glow. They were the ones on Mount of Transfiguration. They were the ones that saw Jesus rise better than Superman. They were the ones that saw it all. And they've seen the resurrected Christ. And they're praying that they would not be afraid. This is the interesting thing about the praying community. Is that they know that they're praying that God would give grace to them. To be faithful. I mean, when you make those applications, first that was shaken. Now the second thing is, when they were shaken by the world, then God shakes them back. And this is going to interesting application, and it only happens here. I hope it doesn't happen here today. Maybe it has to do it figuratively. They prayed, and the ground shook. Now, if you were there when the ground shook, immediately you would have remembered the last time it shook was only a few weeks ago when the the stone on Easter morning was rolled away. You can read about that in Matthew chapter 28. The stone was rolled away because the earth was shaking. God didn't have to move the stone to let Jesus out because Jesus could have come through the stone. He moved the stone so we could see that he's not in there. Death could not hold him. And the earth shook at that reality. But just a few hours before that the earth shook when the weight of God's wrath was put on Jesus on the cross. It is finished. He gives up the ghost. In utter darkness the ground cannot stay still. I believe that the answer to prayer and this particular case was that he shook them to remind them that God is God and that what took place at Calvary, what took place in the removing of the stone was the very reason they should have boldness to pray to be able to confess Christ because it's real. And the interesting thing about these guys, when they prayed for boldness, they got it. Because if you turn over to Acts chapter 17, you're going to find that that they start saying, these people are turning the world upside down. (laughs) Have you turned the world upside down? Have you made a difference in your world? I want to encourage you to pray. I just don't want you to say, I'll pray for you. I don't want you just to have a moment of silence. I've been to some of those. We just had a Christians basketball league with the YMCA. We had a moment of silence for somebody. I looked up and I saw the kids. They don't know how to pray. It was nice that they were quiet for a minute. Really nice. But the point I'm making is, is that if you don't use that time to pray, or if you use that time to pray, what are you asking for? One of the things that we want to be able to challenge you is that God would bring fruit. Fruit that will remain. We want to, as Jesus taught the disciples the first time, he said, pray that the Lord of the harvest will raise up laborers to bring in the lost sheep. Pray for laborers. Let's join in that prayer. Who knows, you might be praying for God to raise you up to be a laborer. Oh Lord Jesus, as we come to this moment, we realize that the earth has shaken, even here in Delaware. I remember when it shook here. But it wasn't in response to my praying. Lord, I pray that you will shake us up this morning as we enter into the post-Easter season of the year when we have spring in front of us and followed by a beautiful summer where we expect hundreds and even thousands and even tens of thousands to have come through this region of coastal Sussex. Help us to, to boldly confess Christ Show us how to do it. May our speech be with grace. May it communicate the love of, Christ, of God. But help us not to be wearied need. Help us not to be feeble or afraid. Lord, help us not to cowtail to, to the leaders around us who say, be quiet, don't do that, don't rock the boat. Help us to obey God rather than man. As we are commissioned by this resurrected Christ, let us go forth from this place, making known the good news of great joy to all kinds of people. For unto us has been given a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Oh, Lord, I pray that through the outreaches, even through the movie that is the outreach event of, in our local theater, God's not dead. I pray that we might be able to echo that message, whether we go or don't go. Help us to, tell, to be conduits of telling people God is alive. And likewise, Lord, when we talk about these recovery ministries or even the John Freeman coming in a matter of weeks, there are a lot of people who are caught up in the bondage of what they think is sexual liberty, but they are trapped and they're miserable. I do pray that you will equip us to have boldness to be able to come alongside, to care, to care, to pray, to commit, to disciple. Oh, Lord, I pray that your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand as we sing.